When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You may know Tina Chen as the CEO of Time's Up, the organization that sprung from the Me Too movement and has become in just a few short years a major force against sexual assault, sexual harassment, and sexual discrimination. You may know her as Michelle Obama's chief of staff during the White House years, spearheading a whole array of programs for the First Lady. I've known Tina Chen for decades as a powerhouse lawyer and as a progressive activist in Chicago. I sat down with her last week, days before Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris as his candidate for vice president to talk about the battle for gender equity that Tina Chen has helped lead for so long. Here's that conversation. Tina Chen, my old friend, it's great to to see you. You're you're hanging out in Chicago. I am. I am. How have you fared uh, during this siege? Well, you know, we've been lucky, um, as you know. You know, we live in a city with a good mayor and with a good <laughs> governor. So, you know, they're doing the right, right. thing. Political advertising right at the beginning. So. <laughs> Well, I just have to say, I think the mayors and the governors who are doing the right thing in this quarantine need a little love and, and, and yeah. positive reinforcement. So, you know, I feel good. You know, when I travel, you know, like I've got a place over in Beverly Shores, Indiana, and I go to Indiana and all of a sudden people aren't wearing masks. You know, it, it, it's a little unnerving. So I appreciate, you know, what's happening in Chicago. I have my grown up daughter with me, so I'm not alone. And, you know, so, you know, we're some of the lucky ones. Yeah, I think about that all the time. Because it gets, you know, the isolation is, it's, it gets strange. I mean, I, I've been with my my wonderful wife, Susan, who you know, and my I love Susan. Get- <laughs> family off, uh, off and on. And that's been great. But it is strange, you know, to be, um, to, to be unable to congregate with people, to have the days bleed into each other, days bleed into weekends and all of that stuff. It, it's not, it's, it's strange. But to complain about that, knowing what people are going through right. in this country would be a, a, an unbelievably obtuse and unfeeling thing to do. And, and I, I actually wanted to ask you about that. I, I really want to talk to you about your amazing story uh, and the amazing work you're doing. But before we get there, I want to take one piece of it, which is about this COVID-19 uh, mm-hmm. pandemic and how disproportionately it's impacting on women who are so much the frontline workers uh, in this fight. And I know that uh, you have been, uh, you and your organization, uh, Time's Up, have been focused on uh, this issue. So talk to me about that. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, the one thing the pandemic has done is, I think, laid open for everyone to see the essential work that women have always done and the essential unpaid work that women have done. So first of all, you know, women are 
over 80% of frontline workers, essential workers, you know, they are our nurses and our nursing assistants and our pharmacy assistants, and they are the grocery clerks. They are the people in the fields picking our food. You know, I've been saying, look, right now, that farm worker woman is more valuable to us and to the health of the country than our bank presidents are, right? Yeah, and, yeah. You know, yet, you know, they're The word not, essential it, actually means something. Exactly. I mean, it's how we're keeping fed during this moment. And, you know, yet, you know, they've got unequal pay. Um, they, you know, we just put out a survey at Time's Up, you know, that shows that, you know, Latinx and Black women are disproportionately feeling the effects of unequal pay, of race and sex discrimination. And it's taking a huge mental health toll, right? You know, over half of the Latinx women in our survey said they worry about their children. They're crying themselves to sleep at night. I mean, this is not just the economic toll and the toll on their families, the personal toll it's taking. Yeah. You know, we're worrying about childcare right now, right? You know, yeah, well, these, these, yeah, these issues all are connected. They're all connected, you know, and it's not just people with children who have caregiving responsibilities. It's people who have sick relatives and parents, somebody who's, you know, trying to care for someone who's got the virus, you know, and, and well, you know, David, we've lived this, right? In our country, we have always approached these issues as personal issues that workers just need to figure out on your own, you know, figure right. out your own child care. It's not my problem as your employer. It's not the government's problem. When in fact, it is the government's problem, right? And it is the employer's problem. And I think we finally see that what we need to do to have a healthy economy is um, the public sector needs to, we need better paid sick leave. You know, we're the one of the few countries in the world with that paid sick leave policies and with that paid leave policies. We need those. And, but it's not just the public sector folks, the private, you know, private employers can step up and do the right thing for their employees. And it will be valuable to them if they do it, right? It's not a cost. It will invest in your workers and your workers are going to produce for you and you will recover quicker in this pandemic and this economic downturn if you invest in them. Yeah. You know, you, you point out that not only are women uh, sort of the preponderance of frontline essential uh, workers helping us as a community and as a society through this crisis, but and the 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 truth of things is that women bear the brunt. Um, even in progressive households, women bear the brunt of 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 childcare and holding the households uh, together. And and you know, my uh, I mentioned Susan before. You know, she runs this uh, or, organization, um, Cure for epilepsy research, and they fund epilepsy researchers all over the world. And it's been an enormous uh, strain on women researchers because they're home, they're caring for their kids who are not going right. to school, who don't have activities, and yet they're trying as best they can with their lab shut down to advance their work. Um, so, you know, this thing goes up and down the economic scale. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, it, 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 as you pointed out at the beginning, the this pandemic has put a microscope to the fault lines in our society, and we see them so clearly now. And the question is whether, as a result of this, if something good comes from this, perhaps it will be that we'll get more serious about uh, addressing these policies. Another thing about the pandemic is that it's a, another thing it's exposed is 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 racism uh, in a different form. And it has been uh, racism directed and sometimes directed from the White House at Asian Americans. 
Uh, And I wanted to ask you that uh, uh, as uh, an Asian American um, and as an observer of these trends, um, how profound has that been? It's been incredibly profound. I mean, there's, I actually just recently heard a presentation from um, a Chinese American professor at, um, at, at UC San Diego who has actually been recording and kind of trying to keep track of the, you know, and he has incidents coming from all over, you know, of older Asian Americans who are getting spat upon, right? Who are getting, you know, yelled at in restaurants, who are getting physically accosted um, by people, you know, people who are not Chinese, but look different or, you know, seem to be Asian in some form who are, you know, having epithets, you know, yelled at them. Um, and, and, and this, you know, every time the president tries to use a different name for this virus, you know, and try to blame it on China, he is giving license to this kind of outright, you know, discrimination and, you know, and, and assaults really that are happening to Asian Americans around the country right now. You know, it was, I was mentioning to you before we started rolling that uh, you and I have known each other for a long time. We have. You and I were doing lots of really different things 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> yes, we were. We, we, we Different things and, and the same things in some ways. But right. Uh, right. Uh, uh, but uh, you learn, I, I get these thick memos uh, before we do these podcasts, and I learned so much about old friends from this. And I didn't know that much about kind of your origin stories and mm. your family. And yeah. it, this relates to the last point. Uh, your your folks fled uh, China uh, during the revolution in 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 the mid forties, uh, but they didn't head to the coasts yep. where many Chinese Americans were gathering in com- Chinese American com- or Chinese re- uh, immigrants were gathering in immigrant communities, uh, and I was interested as to why. Explain that their decision to come to the middle of the country, uh, yep. to the Cleveland area, rather than and not settle in a uh, predominantly or even close to predominantly uh, Chinese community. There were no other Chinese families. You yeah. you settled, they settled in a in a predominantly Jewish community. They did. Uh, they did in Cleveland. What was their thinking then? So my dad, you know, when they my parents first came to the states in 1949, you know, they were students and they were part of a generation. Um, Helen Z actually wrote a whole book about this generation. You know of of young professionals, actually, they came here for graduate school, um, and then got you know, you know, then could not go home right once the communist revolution happened. Um, so separated from most of their family, and you know, my dad in talking with, you know, his some friends and family who were here who were settled in you know the big Chinese American conclaves in you know Los Angeles and in New York, really was concerned about you know, anti-Asian discrimination then. And he attributed some of that, that he felt it would be worse when there were large congregations of Asian Americans living together, because that was more threatening to people. And so he decided to settle his family, as you said, in Ohio, <laughs> literally in the middle of the country. So I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, where literally at the time, this is in the 50s and 60s, there were, I think, six Chinese families on the east side of Cleveland, and we knew them all, right? <laughs> we, we, we knew everybody. And, you know, every time a Chinese restaurant would open anywhere in Northeast Ohio, it could be two hours away and we would drive there. Right. So. Well, how is that for you to be the the, the only Chinese yeah. uh, 
kid in the neighborhood, in the community. Um, you know, I had this interesting conversation with Sanjay Gupta uh, about growing up in the suburbs of Detroit. And he said that he joined everything because he wanted to be he wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be totally part of the community. But he said he joined everything, but he never he never quite felt entirely accepted. Um, and I, I'm wondering what your experience was. So that that wasn't my experience. I mean, two things about my experience. One is uh, my parents, you know, which I will be forever grateful for, you know, recognizing they were separated from family, that we didn't have a lot of cultural connections. Um, they and several friends of theirs who were similarly situated in Chicago and Indiana and elsewhere, uh, literally 62 years ago, created a Chinese family camp where once a summer for a week, you know, these, you know, 200 people from across the Midwest, Chinese families, and the whole family would go, would gather in central Indiana, if you can imagine, we're in Amish country, <laughs> 200 Chinese folks show up, <laughs> and we would have a Chinese family camp where we would do culture, and everyone would call each other auntie and uncle, and the kids were cousins, and um, and that actually gave me a, a sense of extended relationship, you know, to being Chinese and Chinese-American. Um, all through my years, we went consistently my entire childhood. The camp, I will say, has continued unbroken. Still exists, huh? Still exists. We just did the virtual version last week. <laughs> we did a virtual. So you kept it up. You kept going. We kept going. You know, the kids have kept going. These are people I've known since we were three years old. My children oh. went, and my kids feel a connection to it now. We now have actually families have joined who adopted kids from China, right? So that, that's how they're they're getting this. And um, and some of us have like my daughter's adopted from China, so it's a great connection. So that took care of sort of feeling like I wasn't alone and being Chinese. And yet in the rest of my life, I have to say, I suspect David had made a difference growing up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood because actually the bigger problem was that I was just shiksa, not that I was Chinese. <laughs> once, it, once it became time, once it became time for us to date when I got to high school, that was more of the issue that I wasn't Jewish than it was that I was Chinese. Um, but otherwise it I never really felt not accepted. You know, I knew yeah. I was different. And I think that that actually being an other has in some unconscious way stood me in good stead as an adult, you know, because when I was the only woman and the only person of color at Skadden Arps sitting in, you know, you know, big, meeting, that, yeah. right. And, you know, I never felt, um, it was familiar, right. Cause I'd been the only before, but yes. I didn't feel the only in a way that I didn't feel accepted in a way. It sounds like Sanjay. Do you think, did. I mean, Jewish, I mean, the Jewish community has had his own experience in that regard. Right. And the fact that people gathered in Jewish communities was in a sense exactly what Chinese Americans uh, uh, or Chinese immigrants were doing and, and, and Chinese Americans gathering in, in, in those communities that your parents avoided. Do you think there was more receptivity, uh, more openness um, because of, of the I do. The Jewish, Jewish history. I do. I do. Because I think, you know, and there's, you know, a, a, a sense of both having, you know, lived through being persecuted, you know, as a people, um, at, you know, at, for whatever that was, I, you know, I felt, I was a joiner too. I'm not sure. I think that was just my personality, but I yeah. never felt. <laughs> Knowing you, I, I'm not, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> You know me, so you know be, no, be, you wouldn't be surprised I was student council president, right? So. No, no, I, I have the whole list here. You were in the choir, a cheerleader, editor, <laughs> oh of the my school God. Liter 
editor of the school literary magazine, uh, elected student officer of the Ohio Association of Student <laughs> Councils. Uh, and you have like really an, good researchers, David. <laughs> and, and an ace student. The only thing on there that, that surprised me was the cheerleader part. Was uh, that coming? Not like a really good cheerleader. I have to that. <laughs> you you went on to Radcliffe. I did. You studied sociology because the the chairman of the uh, political science department was so conservative. He, it, you didn't want to be under his tutelage. Is that the idea? Well, it was a little bit for those you know who know Harvey Mansfield. That he was mm -hmm. chair. He was chair of the government department at Harvard at the time, and you know I fancied myself a bit of a radical. So yes, I went to the sociology department, which at the time was populated by people like Theda Scotchpole, who was you know much more to the left. Um, but you could take government courses as a socio sociology major, so I sort of figured I would get the best of both, best of both worlds. Why were you drawn to uh, to politics to 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 that? What what was the lure there? It's a good question. You know, I don't know, David. I always was. You know, you know, when I was twelve years old, I was twelve years old in nineteen sixty-eight, right? Which yeah. was that incredible year. And remember it well. I was a teenager then too. Yeah. Well, and I wore, you know, I wore black armbands to school, right? And I'm twelve mm -hmm. years old. I'm like in eighth grade, and I'm wearing a black armband. My father, interestingly enough, I think it came from my dad. My dad was a young, was a student during World War II, and was a, you know, sort of an activist and an organizer famously told this story that was his favorite of organizing a dance so that in order so that the underground in China, because he was in occupied Shanghai, could sneak guns, you know, could do some gun running, you know, over the mm -hmm. cover of this college student um, dance. Um, and so he, during the Vietnam War, interestingly, was a, was very anti-war. And I kind of joined him in that. And he was a psychiatrist. He was a psychiatrist. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I went down and my first campaign I ever volunteered in was the Eugene McCarthy campaign you uh -huh. know, in, in Cleveland, Ohio. Sort of, I don't even remember what I did, but I remember my mother driving me, <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to their offices on Cedar Road. And um, when you were 12, when I was 12, when yeah. I was 12. So I, that, I guess it was the start and it just kind of kept going from there. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You got married right after college. I you did. headed back back to to someone from uh, from Illinois. Right, that's how I got uh, to Illinois. And you got to Illinois, and you and you went into state government. Mm -hmm. Was that part of your interest in politics and service and what, or was it just a job? No, it was it was part of it. I mean, so I. I married someone who was a year ahead of me at Harvard, and he had already taken a job in state government, and that's how we first landed in Springfield. So I was joining him. I will confess I spent that summer after we got married looking for a job unsuccessfully in various places um, and thinking, all right, I've now just completely trashed my Harvard education because I'm stuck here in Springfield, Illinois with no prospects for a job when you know a job you know opened up at the Bureau of the Budget uh, working for Governor Thompson. You know, yeah, this is 1978, and the Bureau of the Budget sort of like the OMB, right? Yes, yeah, right. And which was actually a really fascinating place because it didn't do just 
um, budget work, it did policy work. And the person who was directing policy for Governor Thompson at the time will be a familiar name to, to you, and that's Paula Wolf. Yes. Yeah. People, uh, our listeners won't know, but she's a legendary figure in uh, in Illinois government and politics. She's a she was a policy, very progressive leader in in Illinois, but was a policy director for Governor Thompson, who was uh, a moderate uh, Republican governor uh, of the sort that you don't see that often anymore in American politics. So, yeah, now was and 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 I think uh, uh, on the legislative side, the state senator Don Clark Natch was mm-hmm. deeply involved in those she issues. Was. Did you become acquainted with her back then? Oh, she was another yeah. legend in Illinois politics. Became state controller, attorney general. Yeah, yeah. Com- Comptroll ran for governor. You know, first yes. one to run for governor in Illinois. So yes, Don became a very good friend because one of the things I did. This is you know some of your life, David, is being in the right place at the right time, and it just gets shaped by the serendipity of those events. Is uh, I landed in because I got married to someone who's working in Springfield. I'm in Springfield, Illinois in 1978. Ground and, zero for the ERA. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. I had no idea. I had no idea. You know, as, as I often say, who knew? But Springfield, Illinois in those years was the hotbed of American feminism, right? It was the place everybody came to and worked at because Illinois, as you know, was the only northern industrial state at that moment who had not yet ratified the ERA. Yes. It was, you know, part, it, it was the linchpin to getting the other three states, two states, which would have to come from the Southern states to get to ratification. And everybody was, everybody took up residence in Illinois. Ellie Smeal, that's how I first met Ellie. The you founder know, now. now. Yeah. 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 And, you know, every national candidate, we had, you know, a hundred thousand person march down Columbus drive in in chicago we had people as you remember you know towards the end chaining themselves to the doors not me but other people chaining themselves to the doors of the legislature to protest at the very end as as the time was running out not you because you were a state worker and you wanted to keep your job well yeah there was that i would but i would take my (laughs) vacation days david i would take vacation days off i think the statute has run my friend i don't think you have to worry about that but um uh yeah i mean i was a young reporter at the chicago tribune then and i covered some of that. But if you didn't live through that and you didn't cover that, there was this uh, Mrs. America <laughs> series. Did you did you watch that? I have not yet watched it. In it's, part because, it's, re- it's really good, actually. Yeah. Is it good? Okay. Because she yeah. was, you know, there are some people, I, I haven't watched it yet. There are other people I've talked to who are also leaders in that, in, at that time period who are irritated because they really think, you know, there's too much, too much credit given to Phyllis Schlafly in that moment. That, yes. Uh, that She's certainly served. the sense. Phyllis Schlafly being the organizer of the anti-ERA forces from downstate Illinois became a national uh, figure on that very colorful figure. Yeah, Kate Blanchett, uh, played her in that series, was extraordinary. Um, but uh, you became very passionate about the ERA, and it must have been devastating when ERA, the ERA failed uh, to pass in Illinois. No, well, it was. It was. It was, you know, and I'm, I, I was a very young, you know, idealistic person thinking, you know, of course, you know, equal rights um, should be. But it was a great moment for me. I mean, David, I learned so many things then. I got involved with people who were put together, you know, Springfield's first domestic violence shelter, you know, and learned like I'd never had exposure to issues of domestic violence and violence against women. You know, I learned about reproductive rights. Um, I developed this passion around violence against women. And one of the things that we did, and you mentioned Don Clark Nitch, in the wake of the loss, which happened in 1981, um, I was already in law school. 
some of us, um, Julie Hamus, who was working for then state's attorney, Rich Daly, and Barbara Engel, who was running the Rape Crisis Center in Chicago, Polly Poskin, who was running the statewide um, anti-rape coalition, and Barbara Shaw, who was running the statewide domestic violence coalition. We came together and actually wrote a bill that rewrote all of Illinois' sexual assault laws, because Illinois was one of the worst at that point in time in 1981. We had terrible, terrible laws about rape and um, child sexual assault. And so we rewrote and modernized those. It was a very radical set of changes. Um, Dawn Clark Netch was our sponsor and she, she led us, I mean, remarkably, David, when we were in the Senate doing the markup, she let us sit at the markup table, right? It wasn't like we were in the back bench. She put us at the table and you heard these crazy things like, you know, because we were changing the laws around sexual abuse as well, like touching crimes. People are like, so if I'm in an elevator and I actually put my hand on somebody's ass, is that going to be a problem? It's kind of like, yeah. And I think you've asked that question because you just did that. (laughs) um, And we got it passed. It passed in 1983, this incredible comprehensive reform. You know, I, I think it was, I think it was the then Senate President Phil Rock's sort of redemption moment. He was trying to sort of redeem himself from the failure of the ERA. But really, Dawn Clark Natch, which is, you know, an incredible, incredible woman leader well before yes. her time. Yes, as yes. You know, um, legendary. Just really led the way, really led yeah. the way. Yeah. You, you also, I think I, I, I may have run across you when you were um, working on behalf of another legendary figure, Harold Washington. Yeah. Who ultimately, we've become, become a client of mine, but I covered his election in 1983, and you were deeply involved in his campaign for mayor of Chicago, which was an, a big, historic, watershed event, the election of the first black mayor. And he was, I was thinking about it when you were talking about Illinois' rape laws, Harold would have called them, you know, anti-Diluvian, dodo-birdish laws. That was the way Harold... Uh, would uh, talk about it, but he was an extraordinary figure. Um, how, how did you get drawn into that? You know, I, th- I again, through all of this, just, you know, activism. And there was a moment I was, I was an officer for, for the Illinois National Organization for Women. And we were kind of being by, you know, bipartisan, nonpartisan, as you do when you're, you know, part of the advocacy organizations. And then it just became clear, you know, you just have to be a Democrat, right? Because the Republicans at the time were so anti-anything progressive for women. Um, and then, you know, this, that moment, gosh, David, you know, I mean, I compare it to, you know, the night that, you know, our friend, you know, Barack Obama won for, for U.S. Senate, right? There was there, that, that, those two events, you know, Harold's election and Barack's election to the U.S. Senate, for the first time that first big major statewide race were the, you know, sort of singular moments where you felt there was a breakthrough through so much. Yeah. And in fact, the night, that night in the hotel, you know, you know, um, at the Hyatt on Barack's celebration, I met an older black woman and she had a Harold Washington campaign poster that she'd flipped over on its back to put Barack's name, which was exactly that. Right. Yeah. Well, I, that night I, um, of Obama's primary election in 2004, um, I looked up the results from the the precinct where St. Pascal's Catholic Church in Chicago sits. You may remember mm-hmm. that Harold Washington was campaigning with Walter Mondale yeah. in 1983 uh, in the general election in Chicago, and the crowd that showed up there was as ugly and as 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 hate filled as uh, you know uh, scenes from the South in in uh, in in the 60s, and that became national news. And Barack Obama carried that precinct. 
that day. And I told him Harold Washington's uh, smiling down on us tonight. Yeah, uh, it was it was really moving to me. You became a corporate lawyer. Uh, and, uh, you know, so uh, for all this talk of activism and everything, it's an obvious question, which is how does one make the uh, tr- or does one practice corporate law by day and activism by night? Or how do yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, it's a good living. I'm not uh, criticizing you for doing it, but I'm just wondering how you took that path. Well, so when I was in state government, you know, I had had an idea when I graduated from college about whether I'd be a lawyer. But, you know, sort of back in those days as a Harvard graduate, if you hadn't already picked up being a doctor and if you hadn't already decided you were going to go to B school, everybody defaulted to law school. And I didn't want to actually do that. So that's why I went out and worked for a while. Um, But then decided, you know, everybody who was making policy, you know, really had a law degree, right? You know, we're, we're, we're pushing issues forward. So I did go to law school with that in mind. And I'm thinking, you know, well, gee, you know, maybe I'll do a lot of pro bono cases. Maybe I'll do, you know, I knew I was never suited to be a legal assistance lawyer because I'm just not that good on the social work. You know, the, it takes a toll and it takes a really certain strength to do that individual casework. That's that's not in my personality. Um, and I spent, so my first summer I spent at a big law firm. The second summer I did spend working for BPI, as you know, you know, one of the great yeah, which housing, is a public interest uh, organization, interest and you know the did the great housing cases like Gatro. Um, yes, uh, and it was great. It was a great experience, but it also taught me that um, as a public interest lawyer, the best public interest lawyers were lawyers who had been private sector lawyers first, because you learn as a private sector lawyer when somebody's paying the bills. And you can look in the eye at somebody who's going to lose their business or something else if you lose the case. It creates a discipline in you as a lawyer, because that's what lawyers need to be. Lawyers need to act in service of someone else and use their skills for that and have that responsibility. And the lawyers who had gone straight through to public interest didn't have that, right? They were kind of deciding the issues on their own. And, you know, I subsequently defended the Department of Children and Family Services for part of my corporate law career. And I saw that on the other side, right, of lawyers who, and I would put offers on the table and it was like, I know your clients that they were sitting here would really like this offer, except you don't like it as a lawyer and that's not your job. And, you know, I really, you know, want, you know, wanted that to be able to become that kind of lawyer, a, a really good lawyer on the skill set that you need to do. I mean, being a lawyer is like any other trade. You've got to do your time doing, you know, the scut work of what it takes to be a good lawyer and be a good trial lawyer, um, which is what I wanted to be. And yeah, so, you you became a, a, a kind of a, a, a renowned litigator there. Yeah. Uh, you liked that. You liked the... I did. I did. What appealed to you about it? Well, you know, I, I liked the intellectual challenge, right? Because there really is... Um, uh, when you've got that much on the line, so Scatton Arps is where I went, you know, which is yeah. a big corporate law firm. You know, yes. at, at the time, the Chicago office, though, and you you may remember this. At the time, John I Schmidt that, and Wayne Whalen were the John two Schmidt guys and Wayne Whalen were the two upstarts. And remember back then, for people who know the legal market in Chicago, no one from the outside world was in Chicago. It was it was kind of a big deal that a New York firm would come into Chicago. No yes. one else has ever done it. It's hard to believe now because everybody's international and there's, you know, everybody's been acquired by somebody else. But back then, you know, Chicago was very provincial and it was kind of a big deal that these two guys who are very big democratic politics guys too, which yes. is to them. 
John Schmidt ended up as a number three guy in the Justice Department uh, in the Clinton administration and ran for uh, Attorney General of Illinois at one point. He, he, and very prominent in right. and Wayne Whalen uh, was part of the Constitutional Convention yep. that uh, drew up the Illinois Constitution in 1970. So both of them had deep roots. And, rep- and represented the Jesse Jackson you know, delegation yes, to get yeah. seated at the 1968 convention. Yeah. So so you three rabble rousers represented <laughs> uh, the big corporate uh, clients and, and, and you litigated big, I complex did. corporate um, cases. I did. And that was probably uh, and you hinted at this before, uh, not a province for a, of a lot of women at that point. <sighs> Definitely, David, not a lot of women. Um, definitely not a lot of women of color. Um, yeah. Definitely not a lot of Asian women, you know, going mm-hmm. into law at all and definitely not going into big stakes litigation. Um, so I was very often the only you know, woman um, in lots of lots of conference rooms, lots of courtrooms. And uh, including all the way up to the Supreme Court on behalf of, of one of your state clients. I did. I did as a as an associate. And um it was sort of in, the, in the la- my last year when I was up for partner that I that got an opportunity to do that. And to that, I credit the partner on the case, who was a woman named Susan Getzendanner, who you'll remember. Oh, yes. Who, yes. who ended up on the federal bench. She was beforehand. So she was the first woman on the federal bench. Oh, I see. That was after, yes. She was the first woman on the federal bench, um, stepped down, you know, to and joined our law firm um, and really back when we only had, I think, four or five people in the litigation department and really helped grow that you know, sort of put the Chicago litigation department of Skadden Arps on the map. You, you, you also have two children. You, you, you mentioned you adopted uh, a daughter, Emma, in 1997 from China. You also have a son, Patrick. Uh, how, and you were divorced. Um, mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about that, because you were in this really high-pressured uh, legal, and one of the reasons that women weren't prominent in that field among many was trying to strike that balance. How, how were you able to do that? And what were the pressures of doing that? Well, you know, David, I was lucky because I was a Scandler lawyer. So I had means, right? I had the financial wherewithal to, you know, hire, you know, full-time, you know, in-house, you know, um, childcare for my children. Um, and we got lucky um, where, you know, I wind up over the course of my two kids, you know, we had, you know, two folks, you know, each of whom, you know, one worked for me for, um, you know, close to 20 years and the other person worked for me, you know, for close to 25 years, um, including, you know, um, our, the second one who actually moved from Chicago with me because Emma was only 12 years old when we went to DC and intended to stay a year. And she stayed for six till Emma graduated from high school. And I, so I got lucky with people who really loved my children and I could feel confident during the day when I was at work. Um, there were moments when I had gaps, you know, in, in, in my childcare and I, you know, you can feel it when you've got the gap and you're not really sure, you know, and you're trying to trying out a new person or you're not really sure what's happening to your kid during the day, the, you know, the toll that it takes on you while you're trying to concentrate on your work. And I could only imagine, and I thought about this a lot as I was living through it, what do you do if you're a minimum wage worker, right? Or you are, you know, you know, someone who doesn't have that kind of financial means that I had. That's the only way I got it to work, David, was I had enough money and enough, you know, ability to hire the kind of childcare that made me comfortable. Yeah. And just thousands and thousands and thousands of women in this country, because we 
are the only country without a national paid leave policy, industrialized country. There's us in Papua New Guinea, let's be clear, in the world that doesn't have some form of paid maternity leave or parental leave. And that's where my passion for working families issue comes from, is that I got lucky and I know I got lucky. Um, But, you know, so many thousands of women and now men too are not so lucky. Just before we before we leave, um, Emma, I, I wanted to ask you about that and your adoption of her because there, there there was an interesting story that I skipped over about your mother who was the sixth of six children, I guess, or something like that. But she right. was given away essentially by your her parents to her aunt and uncle who had right. no children, which was not uncommon, I guess in China at that time. And I'm wondering how that all played into your decision to to adopt Emma from China. Yes, you're right. You know, that your researchers are really good, David. <laughs> that 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 was the tradition, you know, in China. So, you know, this is that we're talking about China, you know, in, in the 19, you know, teens and, and 20s. You know, this is old China. And in old China, if you, you know, were, you know, a, a, a son who had a lot of children and your older brother, as was this case, had no children, you know, one of your children would be adopted. And so my mother was for a very young age, and it was only because of the war, World War II starting, um, that my grandmother went out to the country, which is where the uncle and aunt were living, and retrieved my mother because she said, it's not safe and I want her back. And at that point, you know, my mother's like six years old, and she's actually getting taken away from who she thinks is her mother. So that was was confusing. Kind of stressful for her. Um, actually, the reason you know I adopted Emma, I, you know, Patrick was about um, six or seven when I started the process. I was actually I can remember vividly sitting at my kitchen table late at night reading the Chicago Tribune. It was, there was a story, your old paper, yes. a story on the front page of the Tribune about adoptions from China, which at the time were very novel, like unheard of. I, it was the first article I'd ever read about it. Um, and about a family in Chicago that had done this. And, you know, I sometimes say, I'm not so sure if the article had been about Salvador and baby boys, I wouldn't have been as moved as I was Mm -hmm. uh, as a story by, about, you know, little girls in China who could be me, right? It's like there, but for the grace of God, go I on what that could be. And my desire at that point to, you know, make sure Patrick had a sibling, you know, again, I was lucky and I had the means to do it. Um, And, uh, it's amazing. You know, it's one of those things, David, that makes you believe in a higher, higher being and a higher power yeah. because yeah. she is, she is, you know, fits in our family perfectly. Her personality is exactly like mine. I mean, she just, you know, it, it's been a great gift for both, you know, her older brother, Patrick and me. And, um, and it's great. She's now a Montessori teacher. She's, she's, uh, she graduated from college She's a Montessori teacher. He's a Marine Corps officer, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, you should be. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You mentioned earlier... You were part of this progressive community in Chicago that included Barack and Michelle Obama, that included Valerie Jarrett. Uh, Was it obvious to you when this presidential race was going on that at the end of it that you were going to go to Washington? (laughs) 
like, not at all. You know that. None of us thought it was going to end that way, right? You know, at various points. But you're right. It's a really, you know, as you know, you know, for as big a city as Chicago is, the progressive political community is kind of small. And we all knew each other, you know, really well. And I often say I, can't, I don't have a good how I met Barack and Michelle. I don't have that Valerie story, right? Where the dinner and the whole thing, I, you know, I don't have a really good story about how I met um, Barack and Michelle Obama because it, it, it's long enough ago that the three of us can't remember. Um, it's somewhere along the line and being active. I remember it, it could have been during when he was doing, a, you know, a voter registration project right on the south side because yes at the t- same time i was running a voter registration project for women and you know so it might have been then but somewhere along the line i was always a supporter of his i remember actually well david i don't know if i've ever told this story publicly i remember he may not remember when he was thinking about running for senate right the u.s senate race he called me up to have breakfast with him and we had breakfast at that hyatt regency you know, underneath mm-hmm. the glass atrium. Is there a yes. vivid recollection of this? We're having breakfast underneath the glass atrium. He tells me he wants to do this. And I sort of looked at him and I'm kind of like, you know, and I have in my head other progressive leaders who went out too fast, too far, like Monica Faith Stewart, for example. You know, she runs for Congress after giving this great speech, actually, about the ERA on the floor of the Illinois House of Representatives and then flames out, right? And mm-hmm. it didn't work and it kind of didn't come. And he had just lost a race for Congress against Bobby Rush by 30 points. People forget this. So, you know, and, 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 you know, remember the lineup in the race already, we had a rich trial lawyer who was going to self-finance. We had the sign of, you know, if it's not the dailies, it was the Heinz family. Right. Yeah. No, Barack was not a uh, top tier candidate going into that race. So my conclusion of the, of the breakfast, David, was I looked at him, I said, look, I will always support you, but I think it's a terrible idea. And happily, he did not listen to me. Um, uh, and then, you know, the other moment I remember vividly is I was at that anti-war demonstration. Oh, yeah. That, that, that inc- famous, uh, just to fill our listeners in, there was an anti-war protest in October of 2002 when Barack Obama was invited to speak. This was before the Senate voted on a resolution, on the a resolution to authorize the use of force that ended up uh, leading to the Iraq war. And most politicians, Democrat and Republican, were supporting it. So it was it was a, actually a gutsy thing for him to go and speak at this rally. And he gave an extraordinary speech. And I spent years trying to find footage of it when I was working for him because it, w- it turned out to be a historic speech because his trenchant analysis of what would happen if we went to Iraq turned out to be absolutely true. So you were one of the thousand who was there. Huh? Yeah, and it was only like a thousand. <laughs> I know, I know. The it other, wasn't even people, a big deal in the news. It was not a big deal, which is why you can't find footage. It was, you know, across, across the street under the, you know, under the Calder, right? The Calder, big Calder sculpture yeah. across yes. the street from the federal plaza. In the Corvette, federal plaza, yes. Right in front of the post office. I remember it well. And and, and what I also remember is I had dragged along some people from my church. So my, my, my minister is there. She's standing there. And she's like, who is this guy? Um, that is the one moment that I looked at her and said, okay, you're looking at the first black president of the United States. Wow. That's, That's pretty good. I didn't did say that to her that day. The person who introduced me to Barack Obama was Betty Lou Saltzman, who you I, know well. I know. And, and she, she beat you by 12 years in 1992. <laughs> she said, you got to meet this guy. He's going to be the first 
first black president of the United States. And I always joke that I take her to the track with me now whenever I go, because <laughs> <laughs> she has, obviously has a gift. But you did go to Washington. Um, what, what caused you to go? You know, it's funny because I... Because you gave up a big he, law practice. I mean, you I were on the top of the legal profession. So. It was. I, you know, I, I was, and I have, you know, um, I had a house that I loved. My kids were settled. You know, we were, you know, and, and right after the election, right, lots of people come at you and ask because they had known I'd been very active. You know, I was not formally on the campaign. I was one of those like friends of Barack and Michelle who just, we flew ourselves on our own dime around to every... Every, every primary battle state to do to do voter protection on a primary day. As you point out, though, you had a lot of dimes, so that was okay. <laughs> I had a lot of dimes. No so one's going to feel sorry for you. On there. the finance committee, right? We did all of that. Um, but we, um, so people were asking, and, you know, it's so interesting, David, when you, you know, as active as I was politically in Chicago, I, you know, I had no idea about the federal government. It's really opaque, right? Unless you've ever been in the federal government, like what are the jobs that are, you know, what what are the jobs in the White House? You don't really actually know right. what those are. And so I had like no idea. Um, and I was settled enough that I didn't know, need to go to Washington just to go, right? I didn't feel that need. Um, but of course, if there was something that he needed that I could be helpful to him at, you know, the president of the United States asked you to do something, you're going to go. And Hard to say no. Exactly. And that's the moment that happened, you know, when Valerie became, you know, the senior advisor for intergovernmental affairs and public liaison. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, I don't know what public liaison is, but it kind of sounds like maybe something I can help you out. With. <laughs> um, and we had this famous coffee in the um, in the, the Starbucks at the basement of the uh, Aon building or whatever it's called now. Right. Um, the old Standard Oil building. Yes. And um where we really talked about it just before Thanksgiving. And it was like, of course, you know, you, then you just say yes right away and you figure out the rest later. You ended up, uh, you, you did a couple of years there, maybe fewer than a couple of years. I did two. Two, two, two years. Two in public engagement. Two years. We wound up calling public engagement. We changed the name. Yes. Right. Then you uh, took a, a trip to the east side of the White House uh, and you became chief of staff for uh, Michelle Obama. Uh, tell me about that experience. And, um, you know, it was interesting to me. Uh, people ask me all the time, as they, they probably ask you, well, would Michelle run or might she be a vice presidential candidate? I say, I would bet my everything I have uh, that that will never happen because Michelle Obama was never that enthusiastic about politics. She was enthusiastic about what politics could do. Right. Uh, She's enthusiastic, obviously, about what Barack Obama could do and wanted to uh, help uh, promote him because she had faith in him. But she was not enthusiastic. How did she and how did you help her develop uh, the portfolio of things that did enthuse her and that she did with such passion in the White House? You know, it's interesting. You know, it's it's really hard to do, right? And it's harder than it looks. You know, look, you look back on everything she did and it sort of seems obvious, right? That she would do things around kids and nutrition and health, right? Which we didn't let's move and the veteran stuff and, and active duty military and joining forces and then the education stuff in um, that, that we did. And then the, the girls' education stuff on Let Girls Learn, which was our final, so the four initiatives. It looks obvious, it's really hard. It's really hard to figure out an issue but we start, our starting point was always, what will she be passionate about? Because if she's going to spend time on it, you know, it needs to be something she's connected to. Her other, you know, commandment to us, rightly so, was 
There's only one person elected in this building. So everything we do, and this wasn't just about the initiatives, this was 100% of her public time. Everything we should analyze, is this going to promote the president's agenda or not? And if it's not, then we got to ask another question about why are we spending time on it? And then for me as the staffer, you got to think about how do you create initiatives that are sufficiently at scale to be worthy of the first lady of the United States, but sufficiently targeted and smart in their strategy that they'll actually have an impact because she never wanted to do just public awareness, feel nice things. You know, she wanted actual results that actual real people would feel, right? She always said, for example, on the you know, there's been countless military awareness issues out there and yellow ribbons and so on. And But she said, I want actual military families to feel a difference with what we're doing. And that was the challenge. And it's hard to craft those, but I'm really proud of our team. I mean, I think in all four of those areas, over the six years, we, over the eight, entire eight years, we did, you know, a pretty, a pretty good job on that. It's been fun uh, for me to watch the impact that she's had. I always said when I was in the White House that these nutrition programs, that fitness programs that she was uh, promoting would save more lives than mostly anything else that we we were doing. Uh, so they were very impactful. And by the way, when you say she said there's only one person elected there, that person who was elected there started a lot of conversations saying, you know, I was talking to Michelle last night, and you know this because you were an assistant to the president. You probably heard him yep. start some conversations uh, uh, well, like what that. that. What that typically was, and you'll remember, was the great thing about her was, you know, she didn't watch cable news. She watched HGTV, right? And she was, you know, and she would say this, you know, she was probably, and she was right, mo more in touch with what your average person. She's a real human being. Exactly. She never lost that. She never lost yeah. that. And she brought that perspective, which is why I think we were so successful is, you know, she brought that perspective to what we were doing in the East Wing and also to what her husband was thinking about. On, on she also brought it to her book, which is one of the great bestsellers of all time, putting enormous pressure on her husband who's finishing up his book, I'm sure. But, um, uh, but she, you know, the, the other thing I will say is that she demanded a lot of herself and she demanded a lot of everyone around her because she did, she always wanted to make sure that there was a strategy, that there was a plan, that uh, things were well thought through. That must have put a lot of pressure on you as the chief of staff. Yeah, well, you know, she was. I mean, she was. I mean, there. It, we are actually because we were trained as lawyers. I think the two of us have a lot of similarities, you know, in what we demand and what we're looking for, um, the standards to which we would hold people before we were going to go out publicly with something. Um, so I think that worked out well for us. That's why we worked worked so well together. Is we, we had that sort of similar approach um, on, you know, and you know, there's a tremendous pressure. You remember this as a White House staffer. You know, we. The microscope you're under, the constant attention, the like, paint, you know, people writing about her shoes, goddammit, right? You know, you yeah. know, uh, at any moment, the the level of detail to which you have to think about, because if you miss one of those details, it's the one thing that will sink an entire foreign trip, or you know, pick your thing. It's amazing, and yeah. and you know that that pressure that the staff is under, you know, is pretty enormous. But you know, we have great staff. I mean, I have to give credit to like just. You know the the you know a couple of hundred people as you know who came through who were our staffers yeah were amazing really uh, yeah I mean it, it, that pressure that whole thing of how you dress how you look how you it, it falls unduly and unfairly on first 
first ladies, uh, although I do remember what happened when uh, the president wore a tan suit. This created a, a national furor. Uh, Our biggest so. scandal, as we like to now say. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. On, I mean, I will say I learned a lot from that. And, she, and, and to Michelle Obama's credit, she just sort of understood it and embraced it. And we just did what we had to do. And she would sometimes you know, recognize that once people got done looking at the shiny object of the new dress she wore, they would pay attention to the issues. But I will say just in the current moment, David, you know, one of the things we're focusing on in Time's Up right now over these, you know, less than 90 day period is, you know, we've got a moment where, you know, there's a woman nominated, you know, for vice president of the United States by one of the major parties, other women yes. in the public eye. We don't know who it is as we speak, but yes, we don't. But they, we, we may, don't. we may by the time this airs, <laughs> but, but we don't done. right now. Right. But, you know, we've, we are already seeing, you know, the kind of sexist and misogynistic tropes trotted up like what are they wearing right and how much weight have they put on or what's their hair looking like these days that have nothing to do with the experience and expertise of women and you know one of the things actually we're going to be doing over the next 90 days at time's up is sort of saying time's up right on sexist political coverage and let's evaluate women on the strength of who they are um, not on what they're wearing or what their husband does or, you know, what their hair looks like. Yeah. How do you referee that? How do you decide what falls in that category and what could be not? I know that um, in, in recent weeks there were there was discussion about whether uh, Kamala Harris was under unfair attack because uh, of the suggestion that she was uh, too ambitious, that she'd be running for president. Uh, if she were appointed from from day one, uh, though that could be that could be a charge that you'd level against a male candidate as well, could it not? I mean, how do you decide? Well, it could be, but except that you don't see it that way. I mean, one of the things we are doing is taking a look at you know what was said about Tim Kaine or what was said you know about Vice President Pence at different moments because it is different, you know, and men aren't typically challenged because they were too ambitious, right? or they were too tough on an opponent in a debate. Um, you know, those, 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 those tend to be charges uniquely leveled against, against women. Although in this case, the, 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 the problem may be not that she was too tough on an opponent, but she chose the wrong opponent to be too tough on because <laughs> <laughs> the guy ended up winning. Well, there you uh, go. But, you know, other 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 people have challenged sort of you know if you think about men, you know men go toe to toe a lot right and are able no to fair enough fair enough time time's up you you became the CEO last year uh, of time's up talk to me about this moment that we're in and it, it's so interesting to me because I look at the beginning of your career uh, starting off in the National Organization for Women fighting for the ERA and now I'm not going to say at the end of your career but certainly in, in the latter part of your career, uh, you're taking on this, and it seems like uh, you've come full circle in, in many ways, but we're in a different time. And we're in a really different time. I mean, um, it, it is in a little full circle, and then sort of picking up everything I, I learned along the way, I will say, David. It's sort of like one of those where, you know, being my experience at the law firm, you know, and being, you know, the only woman or one of only a few at various points, you know, our experience in the White House 
where in addition to what we've talked about, I also, you know, together with Valerie, we ran the White House Council of Women and Girls, where we yes. really worked on working families issues, right? And all of these issues on paid leave and equal pay. And then, you know, actually, when I came out of the White House, I started a law, went back to a law firm, but I started to practice on helping companies address these issues of equity and inclusion, because I found from the White House, a lot of companies actually want to do the right thing. They just weren't sure how to do it. You know, and sometimes the lawyers are telling them not to look under the covers to see if we're paying people unequally because we don't want a problem, but that's actually what you need to do. So the times of stuff all just, again, sort of fit, right place, right time. I happened to be in Los Angeles, you know, right after the Harvey Weinstein stories broke and met with some of the actresses who were sort of reeling from that revelation and really realizing, David, that they weren't alone. The real, the reason it struck them all so hard is for years, they had just endured the sexual harassment silently by themselves because that's what the system had set up. And the revelations just real, made them realize, oh my God, we're not alone, which is why you saw that snowball of so many people speaking out. And then the hashtag Me Too that let millions of women around the world speak out about their issues. And all of a sudden, we saw the dimensions of a problem that we didn't realize we had. Um, and um, so that led to the Legal Defense Fund, which Times of Legal Defense Fund, which I helped put together. So I've been sort of involved from the beginning, really wasn't prepared to do it full time, but we needed a CEO to come in and um, it feels like a really transformative moment. So here's the thing, as bad as things are with the pandemic and with the economy, we have, however, a moment, as I've said, if, if our economy was a house, we have stripped the thing down to the studs, right? You know, this is not just what we dealt with back in 09, right? With the Great Recession. This is every part of the economy, every sector, unemployment, you know, at multiples of what we were, we were combating. And yet the opportunity is, let's really address the structural barriers in our economy. Let's build back better. Let's build back, on, you know, something that invests in workers. Let's talk about things like paid leave. Paid sick days, days finally got in in the emergency cares bill. You know, let's really right the wrongs of the way our workplaces were set up so that we can you know, have truly inclusive workplaces that are flexible and that recognize the investments of workers. I mean, what's interesting to me as I hear you talk is Time's Up is, it, it is seen as having grown out of the Me Too movement and very much focused on the issue of sexual assault, sexual harassment. Right. Uh, but you're really talking about something broader than that. You're talking about a system, systemic sexism uh, right. as it, as it relates to the whole range uh, of issues. And you're expanding the movement that you're creating here to a much broader portfolio that's related. Yep. Well, it is related because the, re the reason how we got there was, you know, we set up the, the Times of Legal Defense Fund, right, to help give representation, you know, to survivors of sexual harassment. We have, you know, survivor justice calling people out and being there for the Harvey Weinstein folks during their, you know, survivors during the trial, you know, those issues. But we wanted to do more. I mean, the real goal is to end sexual harassment from happening, right? People should not have to endure it and then go find a lawyer to get redress. We need to really have workplaces that are safe. And to do And do that, you think we're making, in the last few years, have we made measurable, meaningful progress in that regard? Well, I think we're making some progress, right? So, you know, so for example, you know, I think most major companies in the United States have changed their sexual harassment policies, right? To be more inclusive, to be less narrow, change some of the reporting systems. But the real issue is, David, that's not going to do it, right? You know, that's why we have this broader mission. Really, you know, what we say is we want to create safe, fair, and dignified work, 
for everyone, because that's what it would take to actually eliminate sexual harassment from happening. And that means you got to get into all the structural barriers that allows the patriarchy to continue in, a, in most workplaces, you know, to that, you know, where we only have 7% of the Fortune 500, you know, CEOs who are women today, and not a single one is a black woman, right, today. You know, we got, you got to break those systems down to really make places safe and eliminate sexual harassment. So that's why you're, we, we are working on equal pay and we are working on paid leave and we're working on caregiving. We're working on fair pay and promotion because you really got to look at all of those things and to try to change our workforce. You, you talk about the intersection between uh, systemic sexism, systemic racism. Um, you have a long sort of sweep of, of, of experience and, uh, and vision on this history. Um, is this... It seems like a unique moment. The gay rights movement, you know, from the time we arrived in the White House, uh, the gay rights movement uh, became something with enormous momentum and things changed dramatically and public attitudes changed. The right. Me Too movement uh, changed things dramatically. Now we see this movement in the wake of George Floyd and you hear discussions about systemic racism that we've never heard before from people we've never heard from on it. Uh, I mean, is it, do you see this as a pivotal moment? I mean, are we on the cusp of something different in America or is this a passing phase? Well, here's the challenge for us, right? For those of us who are living this moment right now is we, we have the ability to make it one or the other. Right. You know, I'm remembering John Lewis right after, you know, yes. last week. And that's his challenge to us is it could become just another moment that just comes and goes or it could be really a pivotal. And I believe it is. I mean, all the conditions are set for it to be a pivotal transformational moment on sexism, on racism, on, you know, really, you know, treating essential workers fairly because we now see how important they are. But it requires really deep change. Right. In how we operate. And it requires people to step up and do it, right? Do the hard work, be loud about it, you know, you know, make noise about it, be transformational about it. It takes employers who, and you start to see this, you know, recognizing it's in their self-interest to actually respond to these issues and they will build a better, you know, company coming out of it if they do, if they let their workers work flexibly from home, if they give them paid leave, even if the government's not telling them to do it, enlightened employers can do it and they're going to get ahead. Um, you know, Gloria Steinem, I once heard her say, you know, somebody asked her, how do you know if you're in a transformational moment? She said, well, you should just live every moment like you're assume. Assume you're in a transformational moment. That's how you will make change. But we sort of don't have the problem. We know we're in a transformational moment because we've never lived through this unprecedented time where everybody in the world is going through the same horrific challenge that we all are. And so this collective will to do something better I think exists in a way that it has never existed before, but now we have to actually develop the new policies, develop the new way of business, advocate for them, and make the change happen. Because it doesn't happen by itself, as you and I know. That's that that's what our old boss told told us, right? Be the change. You are the change. You've been right. for, as he said, right? You know, uh, as we go out, uh, I want to talk to you as one who was at a very young age an activist uh, in a in a turbulent time uh, and what you're watching now and mm. what inspiration you take from these young people who are uh, steadfast and determined to bring about change. seems to me one thing that will sustain the momentum 
of this moment are them. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that they are, it, it has been astonishing to see, you know, you and I know what it's like to actually organize a rally before the internet. We're doing mimeograph pages of, you know, flyers to send around to people, their ability to harness the tools that they have because they grew up with them to instantly, you know, respond, you know, and be on message with incredible profound messages. That's the other thing. It's not just their activism and showing up on the streets. It's a pretty amazing understanding of the interconnectedness of these issues, of the depth of things like sexism and patriarchy and how that manifests itself and racism and how it that history manifests itself in what you see in whether it's police brutality or, you know, just sort of the, the, the kinds of discrimination that occurs, um, what's happening on the border, right? You know, and staying active on those issues and being intersectional about it. You know, women and men, you know, young people of every race and ethnicity, of LGBTQ, standing up for transgender women who are being murdered at unprecedented rates. Um, you know, it's, they are our hope, right, David? I mean, this is... this is. This I think is. that is maybe always true. I think change always begins with the young, and uh, I think we're seeing it again. We're seeing it again today. The young and the seasoned uh, <laughs> activists as well. Uh, Tina Chen, I, thanks for your friendship, and thanks for your time, and uh, look forward to seeing what you do next and next and next. I'm delighted to be here, and, you know, congratulations on X-Files and everything that you're doing, David. Thanks, Tina. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The X-Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The X-Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.